welcome to yet another episode of the Let's Talk Leadership podcast. This is a show where I, Ellie, MD of Transition Partners and the CEO, Sandra, talk to some of the world's highest achieving business and tech leaders. In each episode, we will be sharing tales, tips, techniques and war stories in the hope that you will learn from some of these amazing leaders to help you develop and progress your career. Hello everyone and welcome to the Let's Talk Leadership podcast. So today we have a wonderful guest on the show. So Caitlin Gould is a director at Blue Fruit Software who are based in Cornwall, which is actually where I grew up and me and Caitlin started talking on Twitter a few weeks ago now. So I'm really pleased to have her on the show. Blue Fruit Software delivers embedded software and AI using lean agile practices and test-driven development. They work with an innovative organization in industries such as medical devices, biopharmaceutical equipment, aerospace, and manufacturing. Caitlin is the chair of, of board for Cornwall and Alza Silly Digital Skills Partnership. She sits on the board for the Employment Skills Board in Cornwall and co-founder of Tech Girls, who are a non-profit organization run completely by volunteers with the aim of inspiring young girls aged between six and 12 to consider a career in the technology, engineering and creative sectors. So many lovely things to say there about you, Caitlin. And it's so great to have you on the podcast. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's exciting to be here. <laughs> Fantastic. What an impressive background. Um, and um, yeah, I think you were saying earlier that you just you, you keep getting asked to do things and you don't know how to say no. Um, I don't know how you find time to do anything else. <laughs> Um, amazing so it's great to have you on um, the show I usually um, kickstart the um, discussion and, and the chat and um, so I think initially it would be really good to um, I guess set a little bit of um, context for the viewers and the listeners for you to tell me a little bit more about you um, what you do um, and a little bit more about Blue, um, Blue Fruit Software please. Yeah great so, um, I said, my name's Caitlin. That was a pretty, it's always nice to hear your like background told at you. Sometimes you kind of forget all of yeah. Um, so yeah, I'm, uh, one of the directors at Blue Free Software. Um, I've been in the role now for just about four years. Um, so, um, that's been really exciting. Um, and at Blue Fruit, I look after, um, the business development team as well as, um, and marketing account management and really bring the kind of understanding of business financials marketing and all of that mm-hmm. to uh the rest of the team makes everyone else is an engineer um, so <laughs> um yeah that's kind of my slice of the pie if you like mm-hmm. with business. um so yeah and how how many is there within the business what size business is it and yeah so blue fruit's actually been on a pretty fun journey for the last few mm-hmm. years so when I started at the company, um, there was, I think, about 24 of us. Um, and we were on a rapid path to growth already at the time. Um, the company's actually been going for 20 years. And it's kind of gone right. through the ups and downs and flows uh, as the embedded sector has. So we saw an increased boost um, about five, six years ago when everyone suddenly decided the Internet of Things is incredibly important and suddenly they cared about embedded software again um for a long time they've kind of been ignoring it as the i think it's one of the most unpopular sectors in tech um c languages are like the least popular language yeah. um but 
when everyone wanted to make everything smart, suddenly embedded was the answer. And we were in a really nice position where we had a lot of embedded engineers at a time where it hadn't been a popular thing to do for the last 20 years. So suddenly everyone needed embedded engineers and couldn't find them. And that's where Bluefruit was able to step in and pick up projects. Um, we've always had a really strong focus on quality. And so again, about four years, well, five years ago, we started picking up some work in the medical sector and found it was a really good match um, for our kind of quality driven approach. Um, and found we were really good at being able to deliver what was needed both technically, but also for compliance. And so as the med tech sector has exploded in the last five years, so have we. So we now have 70 people working in Cornwall. Um, and we've kind of basically for the last few years just doubled and doubled and doubled again. So it's, it's been a fast uh, learning curve, um, mm -hmm. but it's, it's been really exciting. And now getting into the AI space, it kind of feels like that same trajectory again. Mm -hmm. um, we're getting really heavily into embedded AI, which again, isn't that crowded of a space at the moment. So we're just starting in there, but we feel like, again, that has the same amount of potential to possibly, you know, double the growth again. Um, so we've got a really strong vision for kind of the future and where it can go, but it's all resting on kind of what we're good at and being able to find the right partners in the market who like that. Fantastic. Brilliant. Um, it'd be really good because obviously you've got a great, um, interesting, growing, challenging position at the moment. Um, and, it, and I'm sure we'll touch on um, more about that um, shortly and, and going to, you know, given that this is a leadership podcast, we'll, you know, love to delve into your leadership experience and journey um, in a little bit more detail soon as well. Um, but I think it'd be good to find out a bit more about how you got to where you are at um, Blue Fruit, like how it all started for you, how your journey started, you know, were, were you, did you start in tech or, you know, how did that kind of happen? And then how did you get into to Blue Fruit? Uh, yeah, yeah. So um, I've listened to enough of your podcasts to hear about people's stories. <laughs> um, so uh, good. Um, but yeah, um, I, I didn't actually start out in tech per se. So I think, um, again, I, you may or may not be able to tell I have a really weird accent, but I did not grow up in Cornwall. Um, I grew up in Southern California. Um, and it was really interesting. It was the time, especially growing up, I was really lucky. Um, the state school that I went to just happened to have a lot of uh, tech involved mm -hmm. in the school. Apple was doing a big project back then um, with donating uh, computers to schools in California and it made a wow. it just meant although we didn't I didn't grow up coding I grew up on a computer so we played computer games we did computer programming we were doing writing on computers all the way through school and it just meant kind of opened up that world to me um, and I kind of again grew up native on it if you like and then the same thing I was quite young I was still in primary school when the um internet came out and my parents got it very quickly I remember us being like some of the first kids at school it's like have the internet um, and again I um because both of my parents worked full-time um I spent a lot of time at home by myself luckily the internet was like a nicer place back then um I look at it now and I'm like oh my god um, you worry for your children now, right? I was on the internet by myself, um, you know, joint, but it, 
but it opened up a new world to me. You know, here I was living in very suburban, kind of small-minded Southern California, and I got to talk to people all around the world. So I joined like GeoCities networks and that type of thing. Um, my dad again also bought us a lot of PC games. Um, so I got used to doing all this kind of stuff on the computer, even just networking around DOS and like learning how to use early computing systems before they had really nice slick operating systems meant that again it was just kind of familiar um you know I can remember like again joining networks and like trying poetry online which is what you want to do when you're an angsty teenager um, <laughs> support groups so being like okay maybe I don't I don't have to share that with the people I go to school with if I'm too scared but I can go online and find those people that I can connect with and build those networks and so I think that just helped me think about the fact that uh, it took away any fear the computers never had any barriers to me mm -hmm. um, so as I went then through school I was really into art and again I was lucky um, in high school so like college American I was about 16 um, and our school offered a graphic design course. It was brand new um, and I got to start that. And that was really interesting because at the time in school, I was really social, I was kind of blonde, Southern California, super social, very outgoing and kind of known as that and suddenly decided, oh, hey, I'm gonna show up and join this computer class. And I was the only girl and they were all kind of like, what are you doing here? You don't fit the mold for who's in our group. <laughs> Um, and they teach, you know, most of the people that were there were people from that had a background were interested in gaming or animation. The teacher was obsessed with Marvel. Um, mm. And I was just like, how am I going to fit in? Um, but luckily, one, I just didn't care. I liked, ex I liked breaking people's expectations of me. Um, and two, I just kind of went, well, okay, I'm, I'm not into comics, but I've watched all the Marvel uh, like cartoons. And so I just found a way to kind of, again, relate back to the team, but also just kind of crack mm. on with stuff. Um, and it was really good because actually that course led me to be, you know, to even know that graphic design was a thing. Um, you know, I think without it, I would have gone maybe to art school and done art, not realized mm. I could be doing design online. Um, so I ended up doing that as my degree. Uh, I went to the University of California Davis, which is about two hours outside of San Francisco. Pretty much everyone that does a graphic design there is like, okay, yeah, I'm going to be a great designer in San Francisco. That's like the path. Um, but we had very good practical teachers. It was like, most of you will not be able to do that. Um, it's very, it was hyper competitive at the time. The valley wasn't as big as it is now. Um, so we were more thinking about ad agencies, not startups. Startups weren't really there. Um, and if they were, they were all the coders. There was no UX. There was not the amount of graphic design opportunities that there were now. Um, but it meant that the courses we went on were really practical and our teachers were really practical. And again, I kind of recognized when I was at that course um, that I was not the best designer. Like it was a good realization. Like I looked around, I was like, okay, I'm fine. But there's other people that have more natural talent mm. or come up with new ideas. I was really good at like scouring all the design books and formulate, like doing a formula design. Um, but what I discovered was that most of the people that were really good at design didn't like talking, <laughs> weren't very good at presenting their ideas. I was the only one that also loved English and writing. Um, yeah. So I became the project manager in most of our school projects and presenter and that type of thing. And 
kind of realized, okay, actually there's a different role for me. I don't have to be the designer. I can do other things within a project group um, and kind of discovering that place. Um, I also was at uni, needed to make money to pay for uni. Um, <laughs> so I started working at the school paper doing, uh, we had a bit, school papers in the States are huge. They can actually make quite a bit of money. Um, so I started again doing graphic design and then I noticed the sales people made more money. Um, so I swapped over and started doing ad sales on the school newspaper. And that was probably my first sales job um, and kind of realized, okay, actually quite good at this. Like this is all right. Um, and off the back of that, set up a magazine, uh, like a school magazine with one of my friends and got really kind of publishing and that type of thing. So um, along this journey, I took a little detour and studied abroad um, in London for a year. Um, I was really lucky. I went to a school, um, it's kind of very much set up for international students. So it was literally kind of the American international school, <laughs> but it was right in the heart of London. And it was a really international classes, really small. And again, they didn't offer graphic design, but they offered marketing. So I took a lot of marketing courses and I kind of got mm -hmm. to learn all about things like trend prediction and behavior analysis and all of these really fascinating things. And again, that just kind of steered my direction more towards um, understanding people and marketing and the kind of driver backgrounds. Um, so I went back to the States, finished graduating, had a few weird jobs in between with interesting brands. Like I worked for Red Bull for a little bit um, and had a few stints uh, kind of starting marketing job, but basically got back to London as soon as I could. Um, challenges I came back to London on a six month student visa um, and no one wants to hire you with a six month well, that's really tough isn't it um, yeah so I came back and I got all these great interviews at like ad agencies and publishing and then they all got to the point where it was like okay your eligibility to work and none of them were willing mm. to sponsor a grad basically it's one of the most frustrating parts of our job actually <laughs> eligibility it's yes yeah, it is really tough and actually yeah, and I just didn't have enough point you know I didn't have enough work experience I wasn't going to be on a high mm -hmm. enough salary um so, but I wanted to stay I wanted to stay in England um I the one job I found that would consider it was IT recruitment into investment banking um oh. yeah <laughs> Really, it was really interesting. It was probably the first time I got really deep into proper IT. Mm -hmm. So I was working with people who were actually software engineers um, and learned all about languages, learned a lot about the banking sector in London as well. Um, the job itself was interesting, where I worked in the culture, horrendous, absolutely horrible, like literally every cliche of what could be bad um so it's a bit of a shame because I really liked my job and I liked working with the tech teams and I liked some of the companies I was working with a lot of them were like in Europe and those places that was really interesting so it kind of sparked an interest in the sector for me that kept going um, but I needed to get out of that particular company yeah. um, so I decided to do my master's um it's a good way to get a visa <laughs> and <laughs> stay in the country. But also, um, I was really interested in trying to get back towards publishing. Um, it was something I still really enjoyed and was interested in. Um, so I did that. Went really well. Again, the Masters was great. It was at L London College of Communication in Elephant and Castle. 
Um, and again, really practical. So um, focused a lot on business. I probably learned as much about business as I learned about publishing. Um, but I decided to focus my thesis on um, digital sales and revenue for print magazines. Um, so at the time, um, this was kind of in the early 2000s, magazines hadn't done that well in terms of online revenue. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, they'd done really bad. Um, and so I was really interested in that. And it was fascinating because I was starting to look into stuff that now we know is kind of behavior-driven develop- mm-hmm. sales and data-driven sales and all the stuff that Facebook now uses to control everything. Yeah. Um, but at the time, people weren't doing that. It was just traditional ad revenues. And I, you know, and they weren't looking at the analytics and like the tech behind it. Um, so I thought that was really, really interesting. Um, it led to a job at IPC Media. Um, I actually started on Country Life magazine, which was as far away from innovative or technical as you could possibly get. Um, <laughs> you got um, they're really nice. Um, yeah. uh, I quickly, um, the great thing is at the time in that, um, company it was really easy to go to different publications um so I got onto the women's weeklies which again at that time were on a huge boom um on now but it was on the upward trajectory um and it was when they were starting to just encourage cross-platform um solutions so it was really fun because no one had really done anything in it so I kind of got to decide what it looked like so oh wow yeah, well, for me, there was people who were kind of trying to sell it, but there was no playbook for what it should look like. There was a few people that had ideas, but um, it was really fun. You kind of, I've got a, as a junior, basically junior and kind of newish salesperson, it was a way for me to make a mark. It was a way for me to kind of show, look, I can think about something different. I can, and it was interesting to hear, like to see the brand's interaction and excitement over being able to do more digital stuff. Um, so that got me some attention. It meant I got a mentor within the business. The mentor was extremely helpful and said, if you're really into digital, you need to leave print publishing, <laughs> like, <laughs> um, which was probably some of the best advice I've got <laughs> in my career. Um, and, uh, so I left that and jumped to a digital marketing agency. Um, so all the line at this point, I've been kind of junior, junior all the way through, mm-hmm. Um, I joined that agency as well as a kind of junior under the founder um, who's doing business development. Wow. Um, and that, it, it, it had only been going for a few years, but again, similar kind of, it was a startup-y vibe. Mm-hmm. Um, very much fail fast, let's experiment, let's grow. Um, and so I was there for kind of about four years and it was a bit of a, again, a whirlwind. We kind of went from 12 people to 60 people in four years. Um, you know, we went from revenues of kind of tens of hundreds of thousands to millions in four years. Um, and I is, went, it, is it at this point that you started lead in leadership? Yeah. yeah. So for me, I went from kind of a supporting role to suddenly I found myself in a few years. First kind of heading up London. Then we opened a New York office. Then we opened a Seattle office. And suddenly wow. I was heading up <laughs> three international offices and like a team and a multi-million pound turnover and I just kind of went what what just happened (laughs) (laughs) I think the really interesting thing is there was no one else who'd done my role ahead of me 
so some of the bigger organizations, you kind of go through a pipe work. You go, you go on a leadership journey or you get coached or you get trained mm. for years. This one, it was just literally, okay, we're getting bigger. We should have a more senior person. You're the, you do it. So I didn't have anyone. Who, like I, I got no leadership training. Um, no one did. We were all figuring out what it meant to like, neither did the founders. They, you know, they just, we got titles and responsibility yeah. <laughs> while we were still figuring out what all that meant. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was really, it was hard. It was, it was kind of a bit of, wasn't quite fake it till you make it. It was kind of do the best we can when we don't really know what we're doing. Um, and time is of the essence, right? When you're in that, you're in that situation, you're scale up fast. So it's yeah, it was back on do with it, the the courses and things like that. The training often takes a backseat. Yeah, and a lot of it was learning on the job, and we kind of it, it was a lot of encouragement of that. Um, it's a lot of reading startup other startup books, that type of thing. Um, but most of them are on the same journey as you, so it's hard to kind of to learn. Um, but uh, yeah, so somewhere along those lines, I got kind of a little bit burnt out on London. And um, at that point, my husband and I decided to move to Cornwall. Um, so then so I your my- husband was a chef in London and he bought yeah. a restaurant in Cornwall. So you moved, moved down to oh, Cornwall. Yeah, yeah. I, it's, it's actually, I actually pushed him to do it. I'm not looking back at my closet, thinking, but um, <laughs> I liked, I came down to Cornwall on a holiday with him and loved how it seemed like California. You know, it had like the similar vibe, more friendly. As a person that didn't grow up or go to school in England, I found London was really hard to connect to people. Mm-hmm. And I liked the fact that when I went to Cornwall, like I connected with the person working at the store faster than I connected with like my neighbor in London for 10 years. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it was just, it was a nice culture fit for me. Um, but again, suddenly it's like, okay, now I'm running three teams from a conservatory remote in Cornwall. Um, so yeah. how do you do that? So luckily I was really ready for COVID. I was like, I know how to do this. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> it was all, you know, when I look back on it now, it was just a, a, a manic curve um, in terms of growth and myself and what I was taking and the responsibility I was taking on. Um, and it kind of, it did hit a bit of a, or bit of a head when I went on I went on my first or I went on maternity leave yeah. um and thought it'd be fine thought I'd set it all up and thought it'd be fine um but while I was away stuff didn't go quite as well as it was when I was there um and actually uh right before I came back I was made redundant um and so that was really really hard it was a big hit because I still had a lot of imposter syndrome about being a leader at all in the first place mm, yeah, and so yeah. then to be told that as a leader I was redundant mm. it makes sense I was like how can you have a sales team without a sales director like mm-hmm. I don't particularly understand. after your maternity leave I can imagine that felt like a lot of unfinished business as well because you kind oh, of I was ready to go back I was like super excited ready to go back um and it was also it was a big emotional setback too it's yeah uh, I loved the people I worked with I really liked the company I really liked the culture um so it was a it was not just a professional hit it was like a personal hit um and it's interesting I was reflecting on it again um just getting ready for this talk because it's something that's probably and it was about um you know eight years ago now 
for seven years ago now. And it's taken me a long time to kind of process it all. Um, I was really lucky at the time, again, yay for internet networks, um, that I found a network mm-hmm. of women. I got support. I actually pushed back and got the compensation I was due because you're not allowed to make people redundant when they're on maternity leave. Um, and so I did push back on it. So I got some of the, um, what's it called? I got some of the validation, if you like, from kind of winning mm-hmm. that battle. And I think I obsessed over that for a long time. Um, but actually, you know, in terms of the leadership journey I'm going on now and kind of reflecting back on what a good leader is, um, when I look back at the situation, yes, the company was absolutely responsible for making a bad decision in terms of maternity rights but if I look at it's not 100% the company's fault you know when I look at it um I look at my leadership style and what I was doing you know I was very close to him I was everything was my stuff it was on my team it was in my head it was my plan my strategy and I was very much delivering the um business development activity and what mm-hmm. I wasn't I, I wasn't being transparent in terms of helping people to see my vision or to see where I was going or to see my processes. I wasn't recording my processes anywhere. So it meant that when I left, it was like a delivery person left, not a leader. Yeah. yeah. So you were more managing rather than leading, which is yeah. actually something that I'd like to, I guess, delve into a little bit more then. So let's talk about your leadership style and how that's evolved then. Obviously, it sounds like you did a lot of reflection after the redundancy. Um, and that's, I'm sure helped you as a leader and what you're doing at the moment at Bluefruit. So if you can talk to us more about that and how your team would describe you as a leader now, that'd be incredible. Yeah. And I have to say, you know, one of the easiest ways that Bluefruit helped me bounce back from a lot of that insecurity is I was actually offered my director job at Bluefruit while I was pregnant. So it's kind of like, like like, not everybody (laughs) about this type of thing. So, um, but, but again, you know, starting there, obviously had some concerns. Okay. How am I going to, be different and blue fruit uh, I, when I started at blue fruit I was in a similar role originally which was kind of head of not a company director and then about six months in um I was made a company director and I, I didn't realize what that meant until I it happened luckily I read into it before I signed up um but you know again not having been through the more traditional corporate leadership structure I didn't realize, you know, the difference between being a kind of manager, like you said, and the responsibilities of being a leader in terms of what you have to, your kind of care for the whole of the business and being able to look at things big picture and strategically, um, not just the delivery of your own team, but what's the strategy for the business? Are we doing the right things? Are you questioning yourself enough? Um, And I think that's been probably the biggest journey I've gone on through Blue Fruit is learning how to transition from being a delivery person and partner into a strategic leader like and you just being able to kind of take that step up and being able to have that higher level view of everything um and that's that's definitely been one of my biggest challenges but also one of the biggest learning curves um and kind of opportunities for me and especially my role at the moment I think when you when you reach that level of trust, then that's when your team really flourishes as well, isn't it? And it sounds like you've yeah. you've learned that a lot, which is which is really great. Um, one thing I loved about the discussion uh, me and you had 
a couple of weeks ago now was the piece around DNI. So how important is diversity inclusion to you and how have you tackled that and helped embrace it and, and turn things into really positive, particularly when you work within embedded and AI, it's tough enough world already, but when you, when you try to create a really diverse and inclusive culture in, you've got the challenges that, I mean, you're in Cornwall as well. It, it's remote, remote <laughs> location. So how, how have you, how's that journey been for you at Blue Fruit? Yeah, I think it's been really interesting. Um, again, you know, kind of the whole way through my path, there's been a lot of instances where it's like, you know, you don't belong, you don't fit, you can't fit in. Like, even when I first moved to England, I dyed my hair black. I was like, I'm not going to be the blonde girl from California. Like, no one will take me seriously. Um, okay. So I think there was, you know, there's a lot of, okay, how can we open up doors for people? Um, again, I saw a huge amount of issues when I was doing IT recruitment into investment banking in the early 2000s. It was not a diverse or good. It wasn't a good place, especially the company I was in. I was exposed to a huge amount of stuff that now would be completely um unacceptable um and so but you know in the I you know I remember working with um a woman trying to place her and she was a female developer and I remember meeting her and just thinking gosh she's just so unmotivated um and just so down and just so like well if you find me anything and I couldn't understand it I couldn't understand why she was so damn B and now kind of having worked, as you said, having worked more into the deep tech world and getting to see where the insights into it and getting more involved with women in tech communities, you do just hear these stories about how bad it's been for so long. And I kind of now have a whole new sympathy back for that person back then because she'd been in it for 20 years previously. And so it's just, you know, if I kind of see something like that, it's just something I don't believe should exist and I want to change. And I think what's great is Blue Fruit as a company believes in that. Um, you know, it's actually in terms of places I've worked, out of all the places I've ever worked, it's the most I've never felt like I was a woman in the best way. I'm just a person that works there. Mm-hmm. Um, I happen to be a parent, but there's as many parents who talk about their children. And, you know, it's it's it doesn't matter if you're, boy or girl or whatever background you kind of come from or what it's all that matters is your outcome it mattered more that I wasn't an engineer than I was a woman (laughs) Um, (laughs) that was refreshing so I just thought okay here we have a workplace that is trying really hard culturally to be open Mm -hmm. wants to bring in as many people as possible how do we improve uh, but isn't actually very diverse how do we improve that and we started looking into um so it worked really w- well with our new, we brought in an HR manager, which helps. Um, mm-hmm. And then started to look into it with her. And we worked really hard to um, make all of our content unbiased. So we did a big review of content. Um, we looked at all of our job adverts. We kind of did that step first to trying to remove any kind of gender coded um, language within there. And then we went a step further, um, which was something we already had in place, which was to have developers um, do some exercises so that it what that helps with is not just gender but also background bias so mm-hmm. in some ways with our team again because there's not that many embedded engineers out there we don't really care what people's um, 
education is or so right this is why you don't send a cv you literally just do the tech test right and the results you could be yeah we don't believe cvs we want to know how how do they code what approach do they take are they open to test-driven development it's not very common for embedded engineers to do development and so we it's not about if they've done it it's about will they do it will they try will they work well within our development culture Um, And what's been great about, because that already existed, all we had to do was remove CVs altogether and also remove names from the exercises. So now Mm -hmm. we've got exercises where people have a number assigned to them. And what we found was it really increased the background of people that we got in, so people from different backgrounds. Um, Interesting. So interesting, that, isn't it? uh, Ages. It's massively helped with our age recruitment. So actually, we've had a number of people that have joined us um that are kind of in traditional tech sense quite a lot older than the average kind of new starts um and so we saw a lot of diversity the one area we haven't seen that much impact in um was on the development side gender so in some of the other roles uh software testing um quality analysts that type of thing gender's been fine that's that's gone up along with everything else um but not for software engineers so I started looking into that a lot more and it's basically a pipeline problem. Um, so we haven't got enough software. There's not enough embedded engineers in the world and there's definitely yeah. not enough women mm. embedded engineering. Yeah. Like, I mean, there's very, very small numbers <laughs> globally. Um, so how can we hire what's not there? And so that's where I started to look into how can we change that? Fantastic. So interesting, really interesting. It'd be great to see more and more businesses um, doing that moving forward. So I think that'll be, um, be um, really interesting. Um, you mentioned um, briefly before about kind of um, managing large teams and opening up in different locations and, and things. And I think that was one of your previous roles, but you, you talked a lot about how um, obviously you'd gained a lot of experience previously at remote management um, and that's come in really handy this year given um, what we're dealing with in 2020. I think it'd be really interesting um, because I don't think we've had anyone on the podcast before that's um, had that many years experience of remote management. It'd be really interesting to see if there's anything that you've done differently that's worked well for you that others would be able to um, you know utilize and, and learn from yeah I mean I think we're really lucky this time around that um, we have things like zoom um, mm. one of the biggest challenges for remote management is communication um, so the biggest thing I learned when I kind of went remote the first time was how bad email is at communication for example mm. um, how easy it is to mix context and to lose um, and and the fact that we all apply our own context to things that might not need it. So there was a lot um, that when I was first doing it, there was a lot of stuff around where I talk to people all the time, but it would maybe be on the chat we were using at the time or it would be on email. And so much stuff got lost in translation and so many things got escalated in a negative way because of a miscommunication that wouldn't have happened if we were in person. It wouldn't have happened if we'd been able to read each other's body language, if we'd been able to see each other's faces, if you could yeah. tell them being sarcastic, or if you could tell that the person was posing it as a 
you know, sometimes, especially in tech, you kind of throw stuff out there just to see how people respond. Um, but if you're doing that, sometimes people take it dead seriously and mm. think and can go off on the wrong tangent. And I think I'm still seeing it sometimes, you know, now where if the connection's down or maybe we'll start something in a conversation on Slack and it starts to go in a weird direction where it's like, okay, we need to get on the screen. I need to see your face. Like, are you freaking out right now? Or, or, you know, have I just given you maybe a project that's overwhelming you? And you can't, you can't tell that um, unless you can literally see their face kind of crumble. Uh, so I think that's the big thing is just being able to not just have that kind of still face-to-face communication if you like, but making sure that we take the time to read it yeah. uh, and check in. Um, I think, and actually spending the time to check in with everyone. Again, when I was first doing the remote management, I had to schedule in time for all of my individual teams just to catch up with them, just to kind of say like, how's it going? What are you doing? What are, what's going on in your life right now? Because you're not there every day. So you don't hear the stuff that people say when they come into the office and they let you know that they're stressed out. And so sometimes you overload people when they can't take it. Um, but otherwise, other times you might see if you're in the office, you'll notice that people come in full of energy and they're excited. And actually, that could be a great time to give them a project. So how do you how do you get that from people when you're not with them? Uh, and so a lot of that is, yeah, again, just trying to figure out ways to do it online. And and you have to work harder to understand people. But if you're like leadership is so much about those people and what they're able to do that if you don't take that time to understand them, and especially, you know, I have a hard enough time understanding engineers sometimes and them understanding me. Mm-hmm. So we've been doing a lot of work. Uh, we noticed, especially this time around, happened when I was doing it remotely before, but I've noticed this time around, it kind of started to digress. You know, some of my relationship with some of the other directors who are more technical than me, where it was kind of, it wasn't as good as it had been when we were in the office. Um, so we've brought in a coach, you know, who's been working with us on communication a lot more and just making sure we just check in with each other. And it's been fascinating because like one of the things he's having us do is kind of check that we've heard each other right. And we don't. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, it's crazy how often you don't, isn't it? But it's also been wonderful because, you know, there's been instances where I'll say, oh, well, you know, you're, why are you really unhappy with this? And they'll be like, oh, but I'm not. I'm not unhappy with what you've done. I just wanted it in a different format. It's like, oh, okay, I can fix that. That's easy to fix. You know, so I think that's the problem is when you're, when you are remote and you can kind of, you can furrow a bit more, you can like small problems can escalate really quickly and you don't have a chance to kind of feel each other out better. So you have to make the time to try to do that. Love that. Communication coach, that's a great idea. Yeah, it's been wonderful. (laughs) Fantastic, brilliant. Um, So you've had um, a long um, career in um, obviously sales, marketing, um, and and you've had like exposure to the the tech side as well, um, and obviously um, number of years experience in leadership. What um what over that time? What would you say um what would you say like your most challenging leadership experience has been, and and what did you learn from that that you think others might benefit from from learning? 
Um, yeah, I mean, I think, again, I started to talk about it a bit earlier. I think um, probably my misunderstanding of what makes a good leader. Um, so I think that's probably the biggest journey I've been on this year. Um, so uh, again, with help from a coach, I really needed a coach to kind of help step me out of it. Um, so for me, um, it's always been on my shoulders, having never had people above me or supporting teams or people to learn from. I've always kind of created processes, created things. Um, and that means that I've kind of assumed ownership of my team um, and of my processes and my approach and everything. And with that, it means that I've also taken on huge amounts of responsibility onto my own shoulders. So I hold myself accountable and I kind of had these unrealistic expectations that a leader is supposed to have all the answers. Like if you're at the top and you're in charge of things and you're getting paid to be a leader, you should know everything, right? You should, you should know what you're doing. Um, and I think that was a big fear that I had, um, in terms of a fear of failure. So going into board meetings and having them question stuff, it would make me naturally quite defensive and being like, I don't know the answer to this. I have to know the answer to this. Um, and I'd get really, I was really hard on myself. Um, and working with a coach, it's helped me realize, you know, a little bit taking a step back and looking sideways and realizing, one, the other directors in the business don't put that pressure on themselves. Um, and they're not actually putting the pressure on me. It's my own expectations of myself. And so some of what, uh, again, the coach has kind of helped me with is realizing that most leaders don't actually know all the answers. I've got a leadership team there on purpose to help me figure out what that is. Um, I don't need to go to the board and say, I know the solution to everything. I can go to the board and go, here's my problem. How are we as a business going to help solve it? And so I think it's that kind of uh, opening up and kind of um, accepting that I don't have to control it all. I don't have to own it all. Um, I can ask for help. And that doesn't mean I'm not a leader. Um, mm -hmm. It just means I'm trying to figure out how to do the better best job I can and and that's actually the best thing for the business you know I think oftentimes where you can have problems with businesses is where you don't want to admit something's wrong you want to solve the problem yourself you want to fix mm -hmm. it. don't ask for help um and then that's where you can get stuck and just continuously make in this bad cycle of trying to you know make a mistake and then trying to dig yourself out of it whereas actually it's much more important as a leader to know when to bring in help and to ask for help. Um, and I think it took me a long time to, well, it took me a while this year to kind of come to that conversation um, and, and realize, and, and, but since I have, it's literally like a weight has been lifted off. Mm -hmm. um, I'm, and I'm much more, I'm much better at my job. Like, and actually I get, I'm getting better responses from the board. Uh, I think like you say it's taking that pressure off yourself isn't it that you don't have to know everything and, it, and it's all you, you put it on yourself no one else put that on you but but really letting yourself have that break and it makes such a difference like a weight's been lifted like you say and um, so we're running out of time but I've got a couple of quick questions that I want to make sure we get in with you Katie whilst we've got your time today so you mentioned earlier when you moved to Cornwall and you're working remotely you felt burnout that digital burnout was was starting to creep in Obviously, this year, it's really important that everyone's looking after themselves properly. But I'd love to know if you've got any top tips for combating digital burnout for our listeners. 
Yeah, I think, um, you know, we, we had a challenge to, you know, it was uh, the COVID kind of timed in with um, one of our contracts naturally coming to an end. So we had a really stressful kind of start of the year. Um, yeah. I definitely started to pile it on with my team and again, found myself doing, you know, you ask how I get everything done. I work a lot. <laughs> like, <laughs> and I think, although uh, for a lot of people, it's been great not to have a commute and to have all this stuff. There's also the danger when you're working from home. And I had it when I first started mm. as well, that you work crazy hours. Like I started, I had, you know, my HR manager asked me to start tallying up how many extra hours I was working. I was regularly kind of tracking up like a day or two extra a week of wow. time. I it all up in hours because I just work. Because you, uh, you know, I've got two kids, so I would stop, I put them to bed, I do all of that, and then I just go back online and then I'd work until I went to sleep. Um, and I thought, again, I thought that was good, but actually, um, I've kind of, again, with working with the coach and talking to the team, just have stopped doing that, and my work's much better. <laughs> um, yeah. you know, so I think that is the thing. I think it's it can be really tempting right now. Um, when we've all set up these great home offices now to just keep working yeah, um, yeah. when it's dark and you can't it's, it's easier in the summer to go out and be outside and it's calls you when it's dark and it's easy just to stay and keep working but actually um you know the stress levels and the work was digressing so I'm kind of actively now forcing myself um to walk at lunchtime to get away from your desk to get up um to get kind of fresh air I'm making myself not turn on the computer at the weekend at all um and you know and Great if you can stick to that it's hard it's hard yeah making that change isn't it like it is it is really difficult um that's fantastic so many times though we're here as leaders when you do that and you do these extra hours and you send emails late at night though it does give that sense of pressure doesn't it for your team yeah. as well they subconsciously think oh she's working harder oh, I've got to work harder and it's not yeah. that's not what you mean to do you're just doing it for yourself but the whole reflection that it has on the team and the wider business is actually a lot of time can be a real negative so it's great that you're trying to combat that and obviously you live in one of the most beautiful parts of the world so being able to get some fresh air and <laughs> spend some quality time with your family with a nice nice sunny summer as well for you so hopefully you yeah yeah well and even the winter like it's it's pretty nice pretty much I I do take Fridays off um to oh, be that's great. a three-year-old so kind of again that was one of the things I was excited about Blue Fruit is they've let you do flexi time it doesn't matter what level you're at um oh, so I've been again making a concerted effort instead of just like it's really easy it's really easy especially we got used to it during yeah when you were doing like home education stuff, it's like, oh, okay, it's fine. I'll just put CBBS on, just get a few little emails done. And I've just been like, nope, okay. From like nine o'clock onwards, I just get out of the house um, and just go <laughs> somewhere. Um, we're, we're, we're lucky right now we can. Um, but, you know, going to the beach, you're going to the park and just yeah. to be, to like, I've had to literally forcefully remove myself <laughs> from my devices. <laughs> <laughs> and also though you, like you say you, you give Fridays off yourself but you've got all the other initiatives that you're involved in so we'll just I'll quickly go through because I'd love for you to just talk about Tech Girls a little bit about that initiative and what you're doing there and 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 just introduce our other leaders on that but obviously you're chair of the board of Cornwall and Silly Isles for Digital Skills Partnership and obviously you've got the board for employment skills as well and Tech Girls so tell us a little bit about Tech Girls and what you're up to with that. 
Yeah, and I should say the kind of other boards are really, you know, I'm I'm on them because of Tech Girls probably and Blue Fruit. <laughs> so um, it sounds like a lot to be on all three, but it's all got. It the sounds same. like a lot. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's, got, uh, it's got the underpinning thing. Of, it's the same goal. I've got the same yeah. goal on all of them, um, which is awesome. um, within Cornwall. How do we help um, more young girls understand how they can get into digital jobs? Um, so I get to be the same person in all of those. So I just kind of, this means I've got a few different audiences to talk to it about. Um, and it's been really useful as well to see how other boards run and to learn from other leaders. Um, so I've probably got more from them than I give. Um, but yeah, so Tech Girls though, um, again, it came about, like I said, from realizing there's a pipeline problem um, with engineers. Um, a lot of our clients as well manufacturing engineering bioscience space again talk to women that work in there and they're like the women they work in those places Mm -hmm. Uh, and we just kind of got together and I was kind of just sick of everyone complaining about it Mm -hmm. and so we dug into it in Cornwall specifically and we looked through the pipeline all the way going back trying to understand the problem um and we looked and kind of went okay there's no graduates okay well, what about studying? No, nope. actually, you know, in Cornwall, 2019, the GCSE and A-levels were worse for girls than they are nationally. So mm-hmm. there we go. That's a problem. Um, going back from that, I started volunteering. I thought, okay, well, I'll volunteer at a Saturday tech club that is the kind of a free tech club. My son's really into it, so I could bring him and I could volunteer, multitasking. Um, and I was showing up to that and there was no girls there and this was a free club that anyone could go to so I thought maybe if I volunteer maybe if I increase a bit of the marketing to it um help them with a bit of gender neutral marketing it'll help but there still weren't any girls um so we thought okay maybe if we set up um a different kind of club maybe something that isn't just um uh tech but more kind of creative and expanded out what could we do so that's where tech girls came from and the real goal is about um helping very young girls so girls as young as kind of reception year one start to get excited about what's possible and it's less about building like skills and more about building excitement and wonder and inspiration um so that way as they get older they can join the existing paths of education or these other clubs um, so we're trying to start at the base to build up a big pipeline of girls that can then feed into the rest of it. Mm-hmm. That's fantastic. That's awesome. And I love some of the initiatives working really closely with all the schools is, with, was really at that grassroots level, which was incredible. Yeah, yeah. And it was great hearing more about that. So if anyone's got any questions and wants to set up something similar, they're OK to get in touch with you and um, to talk about tech girls because it's awesome. Yeah, we just ran a, a Zoom based micro bit session for four schools. Um, and it works really well. It's a really nice way to run remote training. So I'm really happy to share that with other people. Yeah, I love that. I love it. I love it. It's all about that partnership and creating that community. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast today. And apologies, we've run out of time, Caitlin. But thank you so much um, for spending your time with us and discussing your story. It's been incredible having you on the show. If anyone wants to reach out to you, are they all right to message you on LinkedIn? Is that the best form of contact? Twitter? Yeah. You on Twitter? Yeah, LinkedIn, Twitter, I've got a few ways to reach me. So yeah, reach out definitely, um, either via my personal one or via Tech Girls as well. Perfect, awesome, thank you so much. Thank you, really enjoyed that. Thank you, bye.
We would like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in. It means a lot to us and we really appreciate your support.